Hey Twitter, I'm Saeed Jones. He is, of course, Isaac Fitzgerald. It is Friday, and you are watching AM to DM. Here's a tweet from CNN media reporter Oliver Darcy. In all, the media industry lost about 1,000 jobs nationwide this week. 1,000 jobs. In just this week. Now, that, is, of course, is in reference to HuffPost, Gannett, and here at BuzzFeed, there are layoffs. There have been layoffs throughout the week. We saw a lot on the timeline yesterday coming out of the Huffington Post. Um, and to speak just frankly, the BuzzFeed news layoffs are happening right now in the building. They are starting as we start the show. Right. Um, so, you know, deep breaths. Um, our thoughts are with all of our coworkers, um, our friends, our mentors, um, because this is a difficult day, not just for us, um, but of course for people throughout the industry. Listen, uh, we always promise transparency. We are always going to be real with you if we talk about what's on the timeline, and this is the timeline. Uh, this is awful, and it's also not lost on me that we are in the middle of a protracted government shutdown and that 800,000 people now are going to their second missed paycheck. So it's just, this is hard in all kinds of ways. In all kinds of ways. Like, again, just to, to keep saying the transparency thing, it fucking sucks. Like, that's just the truth. That said, I also saw many job postings on the timeline yesterday. I saw a lot of people creating a lot of incredible threads. Um, like we mentioned, the layoffs are happening at BuzzFeed News right now but there are layoffs throughout BuzzFeed as a company. And I just want to state very clearly, there are so many incredible journalists here at BuzzFeed, and there are so many incredible writers and quiz makers and people on the business side. And I just, any company out there that has the luck, the opportunity yeah. to pick up somebody that maybe is laid off from BuzzFeed today, take that, take that, because these are incredible, incredibly talented people. Yeah, and um, something I've been thinking about, obviously, you know, we've been talking about the Fire Festival documentaries a lot, and uh, overnight I was thinking a lot about uh, Gia Tolentino, who is featured uh, on the Hulu documentary as a commentator. Of course, she's a staff writer at The New Yorker, and she just kind of spoke very eloquently about how, you know, a defining feature of, you know, this time um, in our country, but also like this generation, is the precariousness, right? There, there's a sense of, uh, you know, just constant instability financially. Um, and as we mentioned, like 10,000 jobs in media, you know, and I'm seeing tweets from journalism students who are like, what am I headed into? 1,000 know? jobs, but yeah, yeah, yeah and, absolutely. And, and the students, that's, yeah. I mean, that's a very it's good a point. It's a lot to be like, uh, just constantly having to adjust to what feels like uh, quicksand. Quicksand, indeed. So I do, I just, I kind of want to leave it here. This is the second time just this week that BuzzFeed's not just reporting on the news, but that we have also become the news. So of course, that is a very difficult time. So our thoughts are with all of our colleagues. We, we don't know who they will be, but people that are receiving bad news today, our thoughts and hearts are of course with you. And of course, our thoughts are with all of our coworkers who have to show up during this precarious time and do their jobs yeah. because it is difficult. And that's the transparency we promised you on the show. So we're giving it to you. Absolutely. Uh, for now, let's leave it with this tweet from Sachi Cole. Just a note that if I see one hug a journalist tweet today, I will eat your dog. Uh, employ a journalist, leave a journalist alone, politely offer a journalist a snack or health insurance. Do literally anything else to or for or at a journalist. Please do not touch me. Thanks. Yeah, no hug a journalist. Yeah. Amen, amen, amen. Yeah, just Venmo someone money for a drink or mm. something. Okay, mm. well, let's get to the news because it does not stop. Uh, Roger Stone, of course, it's trending and rightfully so. Here's a tweet from Adam Sower at The Atlantic. What if the Godfather, but they're all Fredo? Okay, which I thought was just like <sighs> man, a clever, funny tweet, right? I yeah. saw that this morning, I retweeted it, and I was then, like, oh, that's good. Yeah. But then I saw this tweet from John Schwartz at The Intercept. I'm always interested when political figures talk about the Godfather and compare themselves to the Corleone family. This section of Roger Stone's indictment makes clear that he considers himself and his friends to be criminals. And we're just gonna hold it up there so you can read it yourself there. But it's a mention of Frank Pantangeli, who is a character in the film Godfather 2, who testifies before a congressional committee and in that testimony claims that he doesn't know critical information that he does in fact know. Yeah, it's... They were joking about this. <laughs> I mean, it's not especially clever or, you know, even interesting to compare the Trump organization to the mafia. People have been doing that for literally decades. Um, but it's 
It's it's something. And uh, it's just the to, tip. Yeah. It's just the tip of the iceberg. Right. And, and to literally see it in a federal indictment, like as evidence, it's like, well, they're doing it too. Yeah. And there's yeah. there's a lot of wild information in this indictment, and we're gonna get to all of it. My God. But before we get to that, uh, I had to see this tweet this morning. Now you do too. Uh, reminder from Isaac uh, that Roger Stone has a tattoo of Richard Nixon's face on his back, and it's off center. It's. I mean, it's a little off center. I just, shout out to whoever the tattoo artist tattoo. was. Yeah. Profile, I mean, I'm sorry, portraits are very difficult, but this is a photo. <laughs> a lot of people, when it makes the rounds, and it makes the rounds every time Roger Stone is in the news, yeah. a lot of people say, oh, it's Photoshopped. It is not. It is a picture from 2008. I believe it was a profile in the New Yorker. That's a real tattoo. Yeah, two things. Uh, one, I am deeply uncomfortable with how many shirtless photos are on the internet of Roger Stone. Uh, you know, I just... Don't like it. And two, on the other hand, I would like to thank the FBI for giving me a news story to focus on this morning instead of the other. Instead of the other bad news. Uh, I, I apologize for the photos, yeah, though, because I, I now posted about five of them. Really angry at you. I'm so sorry. Thanks. But Twitter, let's take it to the timeline. Uh, let's say you did t- get a face tattooed on your back. Who would it be of? Let us know using the hashtag AM2. Who says I don't already have Saeed back there? Oh, God. Uh... Yeah, well, I want to talk to someone who knows more about Roger Stone than just what tattoos he has. We're going live from the district. Joining us now is BuzzFeed News legal editor Chris Geithner. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, guys. Yeah, yeah. always always good to, to share the uh, Roger Stone tattoo with, with the world once again. You know, a lot <laughs> of people great. in the production meeting didn't know about it. I wanted to make sure the children were aware. But Chris, it's- let's get into the news. <laughs> what went down in Florida this morning? Well, Roger Stone was arrested. <laughs> um, that's what happened. FBI agents who are um, not being paid, uh, nonetheless, went to work today and uh, arrested Roger Stone. And uh, he is now facing uh, seven federal charges, including uh, obstruction and uh Witness tampering and uh, and making false statements to Congress, and uh, as a result of uh, uh, the special counsel's investigation, and uh, that will be he's in Florida now, but he'll be be coming to D.C. to face those charges. Yeah, I mean, and, and as you noted, uh, I mean, just welcome to 2019 and the absurdity of the government shutdown unpaid FBI agents having to be, I don't I imagine they, you know, they're knocking on his door at 6 a.m., so I imagine they woke up pretty early this morning to do unpaid labor. It's just crazy. Well, uh, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, of course, reacted to this news earlier this morning as Jeremy Barr tweeted, when asked on CNN about the Roger Stone arrest, Sanders said, my first reaction is real simple. Uh, this has nothing to do with the president and certainly nothing to do with the White House. Uh, I would, of course, tweet looks directly at camera, but I already am. So I'll just say this. Uh, what are the implications uh, for the president and the White House, even if Sarah Huckabee Sanders is trying to pretend they don't exist? I mean, looking through this indictment, it very clearly uh, th- there are parts of the indictment that say that the that directions came from senior members of the campaign uh, to for Roger Stone to continue communications with WikiLeaks during the campaign about their uh, efforts to release information that would be damaging to. Uh, Donald Trump's opponent, Hillary Clinton. And so it, it is sort of front and center uh, at the issues that we've been discussing over the past two and a half years. Okay, and for the past two and a half years. So I'm, I'm not sure how Sarah can say that, to right. be honest. It, it seems a little bit like spin at best, a lie at worst. I, I just want to ask this, Chris. Um, for those that maybe don't know, who is Roger Stone? Mm. How is he tied to the Trump campaign? And <laughs> as a legal mind, what in this indictment stands well, out to you? Well, how much how much time do we have? I mean, Roger Stone is a I mean, Roger Stone is a 
storied political figure. He has been involved in in Republican politics since before Watergate. He played a, a small bit role in Watergate. He was involved in uh, the 2000 recount drama. He was uh, a, a very a longtime advisor to Donald Trump, who he sort of had this ability to, to come back into politics after sort of becoming more of a marginal figure as Donald Trump, who himself was a marginal figure at the beginning of the primaries, uh, as Donald Trump sort of ascended, that sort of gave Roger Stone an ability to come back to the fore. And uh, he, he took it, it appears. And uh, the, the, the indictment is sort of incredible. It, it, it just is, is very direct communications through intermediaries of uh, asking to, to find out when damaging information is going to be coming out, what that information is, how the campaigns are going to be able to, uh, the, the Clinton campaign is going to have to react to it, how the Trump campaign will be able to use it. Um, I mean, this is as, as direct uh, of evidence that we have of like a, a true, uh, plot between WikiLeaks and the campaign to make sure that uh, they knew what was going to happen ahead of time and that, that the campaign uh, actually was affirmatively attempting to find out what those things were. Uh, and those are those are the allegations that the special counsel's office was willing to put in the indictment that the grand jury agreed with returning. And now uh, those will will go to court. All right, never a dull Friday. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Chris. Thanks, guys. Now, here's a clip of Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado going off mm. on the Senate floor yesterday. Let's take a look. Because when, you sh when the senator from Texas shut this government down in 2013, my state was flooded. It was underwater. People were killed. People's houses were destroyed. Their small businesses were ruined forever. And because of the senator from Texas, this government was shut down. Wow. Well, joining us now to talk about this is BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Emma Loop. Emma, good morning. Good morning. All right, we're going to talk about what all of this means for the FAA and the news about uh, New York area airports in just a moment. But to the point of that video, what the hell did Senator Ted Cruz do yesterday uh, to get that kind of reaction from Senator Bennett of Colorado? So this was just before those unsuccessful votes to pass legislation to reopen the government. And Ted Cruz went on the Senate floor and sort of accused Democrats of not caring about, uh, you know, first responders and, and people who serve the country because they didn't want to pass, you know, certain funding bills. And uh, Michael Bennett, who's a very quiet guy, typically not someone who really makes headlines ever, just went off on him. And, you know, when I saw this on Twitter, I thought, OK, so he you know, he had a colorful speech, but I couldn't believe it when I actually watched the video, how angry and loud he was, uh, because this is a pretty chill guy usually. Yeah, I was stunned as well. I saw people going, whoa, holy shit. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And then I watched the video and I was saying, whoa, and holy shit. Um, well, here's some news uh, that we're just seeing on the timeline. It's being reported by CNBC just a couple of moments ago. Um, the FAA has halted all flights into New York's LaGuardia Airport um, because of a staff shortage, air traffic controllers. Um, and David Mack, uh, the news editor here at BuzzFeed, uh, just tweeted, he just rang the regional FAA office to try to confirm this reporting and was told most staff are on furlough and there's no one for them to speak to. So, Ooh. wow. Um, and of course, this just uh, happened, Emma, but it is day 35 of the shutdown. I mean, my goodness. Um, can we perhaps expect to see more implications like this? 
Definitely. I think that, you know, as soon as this shutdown started, there were talks of how this was going to affect the country and how, you know, different workers were going to be affected. I, I think you've got two big issues that are going to be just getting worse with time. That's air travel because, you know, TSA agents are furloughed. You know, a lot of people who work at airports um, aren't being paid for their work and people got to feed their families, right? So if they have to take work elsewhere or, you know, not show up for work, that's a decision I think we can all understand. Understand. Another big issue uh, coming up is, is tax season. The IRS, they're furloughed right now, too. And they've some of those employees have been called back to work, but it's still unclear whether they're going to have enough employees to deal with tax season, which is coming up very shortly. And I think this problem is just going to keep getting worse and worse. And it's not until you see these kinds of real-world effects on people uh, because of this shutdown, whether it's air travel or something else, that it's going to really put pressure on everyone in to come to some sort of agreement. So again, you've got the pressure on the federal workers and you've absolutely got now pressure on air travelers and people that are outside of the government, but they're starting to feel the implications of that. So like I just mentioned, federal workers are missing a second paycheck, uh, but you're also seeing Democrats. I noticed Pelosi yesterday yeah. also had a really right. grandstanding moment. You also had, I believe it was the Democrat from Hawaii, Brian Senator Schatz, also had a very like impassioned speech. So... Is it fair to say that Democrats are using this moment to their political advantage? You know, I think there are some Democrats with uh, 2020 aspirations who are maybe, you know, making these these colorful speeches. Um, Schatz and Bennett, you know, they're among those people. Uh, but I think in Bennett's case, this was a pretty genuine frustration because, like I said, this is not a guy that we see ever talk this way. So I think with him, it was fairly genuine. Right. And of course, we do have to ask, was there any actual progress made towards ending the shutdown? Of course, it's Friday. We're going into a weekend. Uh, what's it looking like? You know, so for the past couple of weeks, Congress has really not felt much urgency to deal with this. Members have been leaving on Thursday afternoons, sometimes even as early as Thursday mornings, coming back late Monday, you know, taking their long weekends, not feeling really much pressure to get this solved. But I think that is changing now because of the effects that we're seeing everywhere. And yesterday, the Senate voted on two different bills uh, to reopen the government. One is the Trump-supported bill that contained money for the border wall. One was a clean one supported by Democrats, and both of them failed. They both needed 60 votes to advance. Neither of them got that much. The Democratic one, the clean one, did get some Republican support from a few moderates here and there, but again, not enough to get to that 60-vote threshold. And this just increases pressure on everyone involved to, to, to give some leeway. You know, Trump is going to have to probably give in at some point because his Congress can't pass any of these bills. And so he's going to have to show you know, maybe that he supports the, the bill to reopen the government cleanly or come to some other resolution because his bill couldn't even pass the Senate. Wow. All right, Emma, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Um, and I, I did want to point out that it's not, you know, lost on us that uh, President Trump is invoking the language of, you know, a national security, uh, national security emergency um, at the border. And that's why he wants the wall. But in doing so, because of this shutdown, which, as he said, he was happy to take responsibility for to Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, he's created a situation in which people are going to the food banks. That's an emergency, a situation in which air traffic controllers and the FAA are having to shut down national airports because they're not safe. And we're worried about TSA agents being able to screen us for our security. So that's part of what's crazy about all of it. Yeah, this. man, there's a lot of stuff happening. Yeah. And at the same time, you've got Stone uh, getting indicted. Yeah, absolutely. A lot going on this morning. Well, up next, we are going to talk about the latest update in the allegations against Brian Singer. That story is still developing? Stay tuned. Welcome back. Here's a tweet from Adam B. Very. Brian Singer remains attached to direct Red Sonia with Millennium Films, according to company executive Avi Lerner. Here's Lerner's statement via Singer's publicist, Howard Bragman, including the typo for the film's title. Um, a lot going on there. Including the typos. There's also, uh, in that statement, he says, Bohemian Rhapsody has grossed $800 million, making it the highest grossing drama in film history. Which... 
Uh, uh, um, also, like he says, you know, part of it in the statement, he says something like, I know the difference between reality and fake news. And like, I just never see it go well, first of all, <laughs> when people um, outside of politics, obviously, you know, that world exists. But outside of politics, I feel like, you know, Cosby like invokes fake news or Kelly invokes fake news. I'm like, interesting strategy. Yeah, uh, usually it's that's it's, it's, it's very much a choice. <laughs> and speaking of that fake news and the 800 million that he claimed, Kate Arthur had this to say. After I pointed out to the publicist that speaking of fake news, Titanic made $2.1 billion not adjusted for inflation. He wrote back, wasn't that a musical? Uh, mm, uh, I mean, there was music in it. There's a score. There's a wonderful song by Celine Dion, but I'm pretty sure, like, you know, we didn't have Leonardo DiCaprio sing it yeah. while doing a tap dance. Also, wait, I just realized, like, it's even funnier the longer I think about it, because we looked up this morning, there was uh, a musical called The Titanic um, the same year as the movie in 1997, and it swept the Tonys. So I'm like... A stage musical. Yeah, stage yeah, yeah, musical, yeah, yeah. right. Um, so I'm like, is this... Is this idiot like trying to pretend like the movie doesn't exist? And he's like, oh yeah, I love the song. Like, I, I, none of it makes sense. Nah, none of nah, it makes nah. sense, guys. You're wrong. It's You're wrong, all, buddy. All wrong. You're uh, wrong. Well, Vulture editor Jackson McHenry has been covering this and joins us now. Good morning, Jackson. Good morning. <laughs> oh my <laughs> Quite God. Quite It is I, yeah. just a lot, a lot of choices being made. Um, a lot of very strong choices. <laughs> absolutely. So what exactly, you know, is um, Avi Lerner's reasoning behind sticking with Brian Singer? I mean, that that's a pretty wild choice. Um, it is a very wild choice. I think a lot of it is that Avi Lerner is a sort of old-fashioned, very rough kind of studio executive who, who likes to do things his own way. And he is also, his company, Millennium Films, and I believe 2007, also was the subject of a sexual harassment lawsuit from a woman who claimed a hostile workplace environment. There's lots of sort of very terrible details about that she has alleged, which, of course, Avi Lerner all denied. But it seems like he is sort of closing ranks in a way that we've seen a lot of kind of executives in the wake of Me Too, where it's just sort of protecting each other. And maybe that's part of what's motivating him to lash out so strongly against this. Wow. So, so, so circling the, the wagons maybe around himself and then obviously circling those wagons around Singer as well. Uh, do you think that kind of strategy, especially now in the, the, the Me Too era, can work? Um, I, in this case, it seems very unlikely. I mean, a lot of it is Red, he's trying to make this film Red Sonia, which is a reboot, which would be a remake of the 1985 movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bridget Nielsen. And that movie is about a woman who is sexually assaulted and gets super powerful. It's sort of in the world of Conan the Barbarian. But for this movie to even be made, they'd still need to cast a lead actress and find U.S. distributors. And that seems very, very unlikely. Um, Anthony Rapp, for instance, who came forward with allegations against Kevin Spacey at sort of the beginning of a lot of this Me Too movement was tweeting today about how, you know, anyone who joins this movie is just going to have a target on their back. And it feels like something that would be, you know, no one really wants to associate with um, unless there are more people like Avi Lerner um, and Brian Singer who, who want to all get together, which seems unlikely. Right, yeah, it's so crazy to me. Like Hollywood execs always want to like avoid controversy, uh, except when they don't. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, as um, as uh, an editor at Vulture, and we've of course been talking about not just this new movie Red Sonia, but what this means for Bohemian Rhapsody, which Brian Singer mm -hmm. directed and then was fired from, and has now been nominated for um, you know a lot of Oscars. And so all that campaigning is going on now. Um, as an editor, um, what have you been seeing about how this might impact uh, Bohemian Rhapsody? chances at the Oscars? Um, well, it is sort of incredible how much and how consistently it has sort of distanced itself from Brian Singer throughout the award season. A lot of the sort of narrative they're trying to put forward is to say, you know, he was fired off the project. He was, you know, reportedly in fights with Rami Malek. He was replaced with Dexter Fletcher. And it's sort of our accomplishment that this movie has lasted without him, which is a little bit of a species specious claim. I mean, he did direct a lot of the movie. Um, and so they've tried consistently to put a distance in, even his singer after it won Best Drama at the Golden Globes, went on Instagram and posted a thank you. Um, and he has been trying to associate with it. So it was, it was very startling that it got, you know, five Oscar nominations, including for Best Actor um, and Best Picture. But once The Atlantic dropped their whole sort of story, which was originally in an Esquire report um, on Wednesday with more of these allegations, it feels like it's going to be much harder for, for the movie to make the same kind of campaign that they did. And they've started to get face a little bit more of the consequences. Glad in their awards, um, put out a statement yesterday saying the Bohemian Rhapsody wouldn't be eligible for their sort of top award. 
um, in light of the allegations against Singer. Um, and even May, Brian May, one of the members of Queen, um, responded on Instagram and posted a long post sort of trying to distance himself from Singer when someone called him out for still following Singer on Instagram. Mm. Wow. So it feels like they're starting to be shaken a little bit by that. Mm. that we're starting to see the kind of cracks. And, so that, and that's kind of yeah. the focus on Bohemian Rhapsody. Let me ask, as an entertainment editor, what are you looking to? What do you, where do you think this story goes from here in terms of Brian Singer? Um, I think in terms of Brian Singer, a lot of the reason this kind of focuses on something like Red Sonia is it's sort of like, does does someone like this still get hired? Um, and as a lot of the concern is, do, do these allegations have real consequences? Um, and then I think also, as you know, these reports come out, and it seems so extensive, at least sort of the way in which it's described in the Atlantic report, is 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 there any way in which there are, you know, criminal proceedings against him? Or, or is there a way in which sort of these, these legal things, if, will more people come forward? Will this sort of crumble? And a lot of what is pointed out in that Atlantic report is also just how extensive the network had to have been around someone like him for him to get away with it for so long. And so the, I think a lot of it is also looking forward, who else is implicated in this? And how extensive is it? Um, because it feels like it's sort of the tip of the iceberg in a way. An excellent point, Jackson. People like that do not just operate on their own. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you for your clarity and for joining us this morning. Thank you. All right, listen, up next, we are taking a look at a new report by BuzzFeed News and The Trace on the crisis of unsolved gun crimes in the United States. Stay with us. Leslie Lowry, you tweeted, important reporting from BuzzFeed News and The Trace on what I'm convinced is an American crisis. The systemic failure to solve gun crimes that leave shooters on the streets and forces the victimized to seek their own justice, often by shooting back. Sarah Riley, an investigative reporter at The Trace, joins me now to tell us why if you shoot someone in a major city in the United States, chances are you are going to get away with it. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Thank you for Thanks joining. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Okay, so this investigation found that crimes committed with a gun are half as likely to be solved than crimes committed with another weapon, which is totally shocking to me. Uh, why is this? Mm -hmm. Well, um, from talking to detectives, uh, one of the things that they say is uh, when they get to the scene of a crime, if uh, the uh, uh, the murder or the assault was committed with another weapon, such as a knife or strangulation, um, since that's a lot more close contact, there's usually um, a lot more physical evidence at the scene. Um, it's more personal, so uh, the victim is more likely to have a personal relationship with the uh, suspect. It's more likely that witnesses, you know, heard uh, what was going on, and so it's just a lot easier for them to close uh, the case, you know, very quickly because it's sort of like a ready-made, um, you know, storyline, like right at the scene. Whereas uh, with uh, with shootings, a lot of times they can happen at a distance. Uh, they don't leave very much physical evidence. Um, you hear a lot about ballistics testing, but a lot of times that can be um, inconclusive because guns get passed around. There's you know community guns and stuff like that. So even if uh, you know a bullet casing is like linked to another shooting, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the two shootings are linked by the same people or the same circumstance. So. Um, it seems like, uh, you know, shootings are, uh, are just a lot uh, more uh, complex and, um, you know, the suspects less readily apparent. A lot of times it's, you know, more like loose networks of, of uh, people or robberies, for example, where it's a complete stranger crime. Those are very difficult to solve. So there's a, a lot of reasons why the difficulty level it, uh, seems to be much greater for, uh, for shootings than uh, for other types of murders or assaults. Okay, and that's fascinating. And so that's just that's just a standard like objective aspect of like the nature of gum crimes, why it makes them so difficult just anyway. But as your reporting notes, the thing is it's on the rise. Like these cases are going unsolved more frequently uh, even right. though the overall crime rate in the United States is dropping. So why are more of these cases going unsolved now? Well, um, it seems, uh, again, um, you know, this is something I'm still working on, but um, the uh, amount of um, detectives, the level of detective staffing at uh, police departments all across the country has um, gone down. And even as crime started to spike and, you know, a, a few years ago, around 2014, 2015, um, that doesn't mean that they increased the number of detectives uh, to solve those cases. So um, as I note in my report, 
we're finding, um, particularly for non-fatal cases, which don't have the same uh, priority level, um, in Houston, for example, uh, where they have you know thousands of assaults every year, uh, they only had um, up until just recently seven detectives in their major assaults unit, um, you know, with primary responsibility over non-family assaults. And so you can just do the math. It's just impossible to even assign all of those cases. Um, a, a, a audit, in fact, found. 3,000 serious assaults weren't assigned, that serious assaults with workable leads so that, you know, they, they may, they had a, a potential to be solved, weren't even assigned in Houston, uh, you know, one year. Um, you know, we noted in Flint, for example, detectives were juggling over 900 cases apiece. Um, it's just not possible to devote the amount of time necessary uh, to solve these cases when, when you have such a strain on uh, manpower. And there are other reasons too, but we wanted to focus on uh, you know, reasons that the, the agency uh, has control over. So, um, you know, there's also a, a big thing that I saw in Baltimore um, was witness intimidation. I think um, there they do have a serious, serious problem with it. So on the one hand, you have a strain on detectives. On the other hand, you have a you know, community that has very fractured relationship with the police. And then in addition, um, you know, gangs that are, you know, make, make it well known that they, they will, uh, you know, retaliate if, you uh, speak to police and, and there's just countless examples of witnesses being shot, uh, you know, and uh, in, in Baltimore and, and other cities, too. But um, but that, that certainly is a huge challenge. Wow. Just really stunning in every way. Um, I hope everyone reads this. Just one last question. Uh, what role, if any, does does race um, play in this phenomenon? Well, it's interesting because as we know in our uh, analysis, we looked at data, you know, going back to the 80s and found that actually black and Hispanic victims kill with firearms, the only types of victims that have seen a decrease in, uh, in murder clearance rates. Um, so about a 20 percentage point drop, whereas other victims, um, you know, you've seen a slight uh, increase even in white victims kill with firearms. So. Um, you know, there are a lot of theories, uh, you know, why that is. Um, I, I do think that in uh, the areas where this type of gun crime is prevalent, um, you know, you don't have, uh, you know, again, the, the detective staffing levels are really low. Um, and then, you know, did, uh, police will say that there are different types of challenges, like, you know, even statistically white victims tend to be more likely to be like domestic or family violence incidents. Um, and those cases tend to be very easy to solve and get solved very quickly, regardless of race. Um, you know, so they, they say it's like, you know, there's also different circumstances. Um, I think that the police, um, you know, have not had the best relationship with the, with the black, uh, you know, community, um, particularly with zero tolerance policing um, and, and, uh, and so forth. And that has really fractured uh, the relationship with the community and made, uh, you know, people less willing uh, to, to work with police. And then there's just this sense that, um, you know, as I've quoted in my story, even if they do talk, the police aren't really going to do anything about it anyway. You know, time and time again, you know, I go to these areas and people say, yes, they'll arrest us for drugs. You know, um, someone having, you know, a bag of marijuana in their pocket, but then someone gets shot and nothing happens. And so that's just the general, you know, feeling in, in a lot of these places. And I think that that, you know, certainly, um, you know, makes it a lot more difficult when the detectives go in and are, are you know, trying to um, solve a case. Uh, another really interesting thing is that actually patrol officers, uh, when they respond to a scene, they're really the ones that do the first um, witness canvas, I found. Um, and that's super critical because these are people who are like at the scene of the crime. And so when you have patrol officers going in and doing the witness canvas, um, but these are the same patrol officers that are, you know, picking people up for loitering or for, um, you know, drug possession or just, you know, hassling people, or at least that's a perception from in the community. You can imagine that it's going to be a lot more difficult to get, uh, you know, cooperation when there's this, you know, tension there than, um, you know, the detectives don't necessarily have the same core relations, but they're not the ones that are doing the um, initial canvassing, looking for witnesses, and that is the number one, you know, um, variable uh, that determines whether or not a case will uh, get solved ultimately. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's pretty, you know, key uh, variable. Yeah. 
Ooh, well, uh, Sarah, uh, thank you for joining us. I, I've got to say, you are certainly one of the most intelligent people I have spoken to in some time. Oh, wow. thank uh, so thank you for joining us. And truly, thank you for your reporting at The Trace. This is just wow. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Of course. All right, friends, uh, more AM to DM is up next. In 2016, Natalie Walker tweeted, Hope someday I get to play a lady with a British accent who grabs the man she loves forcefully by the shoulders and tells him he is extraordinary. I don't know how good of a job I did there, but since then, Natalie has taken the internet by storm with her hilarious auditions for some of Hollywood's most cliche roles. Here's an example from her audition to play a Boston lady with a rough past. Billy. You didn't tell me you were bringing your fancy friends to the party. I would have worn my tennis whites. <laughs> so good. Please welcome Natalie Walker, officially our Follow Friday. And if you're not following Natalie, you definitely should be because as I just said, I watch your videos all the time. They make me laugh so hard and you are just a great person to follow. Yay, thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Thank you for coming on and talking to us. So you've gone viral a few times. We actually just realized, I wrote an article about you like three years ago yes. about you reviewing your dates on Yelp. Correct. And you've wow. gone viral a few more times. You did a video singing the alto part for All I Want for Christmas is You, which yeah. was super funny. But these audition videos, I have to say, are my favorite work of yours. Thank you. They're my favorite work of mine as well. Mostly because like, I write and perform them, and that's sort of what I want to do, is be sort of in that multi-hyphenate world. Yeah. So how did you get the idea to start doing these characters? Um, well, it was that year that The Theory of Everything and The Imitation Game were in major contention um, at all the awards shows, and you just kept seeing like the same For Your Consideration clip of like Felicity Jones and Karen Knightley, like in the roughly the same period haircut and like very Anglo-Saxon like clothes, um, just like looking into their protagonist's eyes and telling them how amazing they are. Um, and so I started just like doing that You Are Extraordinary impression and then I was just like walking home from some terrible audition and it was like a demoralizing day and I was just like, why am I not getting anything? I could be that lady if I were there. <laughs> and so I just tweeted that and at that point like I wasn't, I had like some followers but I didn't have like a huge platform and so it really was for like most of my friends from camp who would be like, yes, this is so funny. Um, and then I just sort of kept going. I got enough of a good response from friends about that one that I was like, oh, I love this. And I, it was also the halcyon days of MoviePass. So I was seeing crazy amounts of movies all the time. So the tropes just sort of started ping-ponging around in my head all the time. Um, what I think so, is really yeah. interesting about your videos is that I feel like I don't recognize these tropes until I see them in your videos. Like, I can't, like, the, the quirky girl who, like, the protagonist, like, is supposed to, like, take him away from his, like, ordinary life or whatever. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's totally a thing. Do you have a favorite? Ooh, my, my favorite is probably the rom-com bitch girlfriend at the start of the movie who exists solely as an obstacle. Just because I find it a joy to be completely untethered to likability because the whole point is that the audience hates you. She has no personality besides the no. fact that you're just supposed to unequivocally hate her. No, and now, like, especially when rom-coms come out, like, when the Vanessa Hudgens Christmas Princess, like, Freaky Friday movie came out, like, I remember all of these people were tweeting at me and were like, this is your character. They need to pay you royalties. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but can you do a little, little for us? Oh, sure. Um... It, okay. I'm actually done with this rosé, so you can take this on back to the kitchen. Oh, are you not working this event? I'm sorry, I saw that blouse and assumed. <laughs> so good. I always, I always want to know, like, I always felt sorry for, like, Cameron Diaz in My Best Friend's Wedding. Yes. Like, there's nothing wrong with her. Like, well, she's sort of 
upends that trope, and that's why I love right. my best friend's wedding, is because realistically, Julia Roberts is like the unlikable bitch character, but Julia totally. Roberts as an actress is so likable and wonderful that we root for her, even though Cameron Diaz is a full-on sweetheart, and her purpose is to be just like Bambi out in the woods. <laughs> but even like the ones who are kind of bitchy, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I want to know their story. Like, what did they do besides they're just attached to the main character? Yes. Ever, like, Parent Trap, she's the best part of that movie. Oh, Elena yeah. Hendricks is our queen. Ice woman. Yes, <laughs> she's the best. She's 26 years old. Like, let's examine why Dennis Quaid is with this 26-year-old woman. I know, and then she's supposed to be, like, and so And we old. hate her? Yeah. yeah. No, come on. So why do you think that writers always do such bad, cliched writing for women? Is it because there's probably because there's not enough women writers out there? Yeah, I think I I really do think that they've just like come up through this system and a lot of these writers grew up idolizing these auteurs and filmmakers of like the 60s and 70s when it was all about like being gritty and like watching these dudes do stuff and then there would be like a woman on the side that did stuff. And I I feel like having gone to NYU and I was in drama, I wasn't in film, but like seeing enough of those film bros that have the same posters on the walls. Um, it's an idolization of a lot of men who were in power at a time when there really was no avenue for women to be making their own stuff. That's so true. Well, I wish we could just sit here and watch you do your impressions all day, but unfortunately we gotta wrap it here. Natalie, thank you so thank much you. for coming on. And if you don't already, you need to follow her at NWalk. Seriously, you could watch these videos all day. Up next, Amber Jamison is talking to Oscar winner, Marsha Gay Harden. I love you, Marsha Gay Harden! <laughs> I love you! Oscar-winning actor Marsha Gay Harden. Her new Lifetime movie is Love You to Death, based on a real-life story about a very fraught mother-daughter relationship I... that ends in murder. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for that great intro. <laughs> <laughs> so this story, BuzzFeed covered it quite a lot in 2016. You play um, a role based on um, Dee Dee Blanchard, who suffers from Munchausen syndrome by, by proxy. Right, exactly. So explain what it is it that she does to her daughter? Well, Munchausen is the strangest mental illness mm. um, by proxy. So Munchausen by proxy is when you keep someone else sick. And the daughter, the baby, a gypsy, had been diagnosed at a very young age with leukemia, misdiagnosed with leukemia. It was something more like sepsis. But the mom began taking her into the hospital. And when she realized that it wasn't leukemia, she was insistent that there was something about the child that was wrong. So she would feed her cancer medications. She would shave her head. She kept the daughter in a wheelchair. And the daughter could walk, but the mom basically kept her in a wheelchair and told the daughter that she was sick. So the daughter grows up her whole life like this, not even quite sure because she was feeling sick a lot because she was being given cancer meds. And the whole world thought she was sick. The whole world saw this frail, beautiful little girl in a wheelchair and this really doting mom just sacrificing her entire life for this child. They would go to Disneyland. They would get charities to help them. They had a house from charity. And later, the girl turns into a teenager. And hormones kick in, naturally, and she wants to be free. And the story, as you said right away, ends in a murder. She and a boy that she met on a Christian dating site um, murdered the mom. And that's what our story, Love You to Death, is about. I mean, it's kind of a wonderful play on words because it goes both ways, right? Both of them are loving each other to death. And uh, the daughter, Gypsy, uh, is in prison now, mm -hmm. as is the boyfriend. The mother is dead. We never know her side of the story. But we can kind of piece together what we think happened, and that's what our film is based on. And it is such a disturbing story. How did you go about researching it did you, and delving into the role? You know, it's such a bizarre thing because even to this day, I can't tell you I completely understand it. Right. But we did, there's a wonderful documentary called Mommy Dead and Dearest, so we watched that. I would try to research everything I could about Gypsy cause I, and, and about Dee Dee, especially Dee Dee, because I wanted to know what was going on before all this. Mm. Did she just like one day wake up and decide, you know, that she the attention was so good from the daughter uh, being sick that and all the goods that they got, the meal ticket basically? What was her life like before? Mm. And it turns out that she was um, potentially 
suspected of maybe poisoning her stepmother. Mm. That when she would go, she was taking care of the stepmother, when she would go there uh, and give the stepmother medications, the stepmother would get really, really sick. And when she left, the stepmother would get miraculously better. So I wow. think there was this, you know, it is a mental illness and I think it existed. It was a, a, a pre-existing condition. So I, you know, did as much research as I could do, but Emily Skaggs is really where a lot of the credit goes to. She's amazing. She plays the gypsy character, and she would send me all, she's like a true crime junkie, so she would send me probably stuff that you guys had done, interviews and things that you had done, or news reports that you had done before. She would send me everything, and the more I learned about it, honestly, Amber, the weirder the story is in real life than even the story that we're telling. It's a very sad story. It's a very tragic story. Mm. And it's as tragic and dark in real life. You posted a photo on Instagram of your character in the film. Right. Saying glamour shot. Right. Talk us through what it was like being in that outfit, the wig. Right. What's right. it like to walk around like that? Show it? <laughs> um, you know, it was, it, it's, it's not easy. And my daughter is a really... Um, uh, she's really conscious of all kinds of things. And she says, Mom, I don't want you to be fat shaming. And I said, I, right. I don't mean to be doing that at all. I don't mean to be doing that. But this particular woman was unhealthy. Mm. And I have to, and that was part of what I needed to do for my character was to take that on. And it, uh, it felt oddly like the more she sucked from the daughter, mm. the bigger she kind of bloated up. And the pictures of the real lady toward the end are these almost unrecognizable. Mm. She, her face is just huge and bloated and almost like she was on steroids or something. So I wanted the body. I didn't want to right. play her without that armor that she was walking around and the burden, the luggage basically that she was carrying around with her of what she was doing. Because then you really start to go, how conscious if it's a mental illness, how conscious is she of exactly what she's doing? And how conscious was the gypsy character of the collusion that they would be in in the house? I was so curious, were there moments at the house where the mom would go, you know what, the curtains are drawn, you can walk, you can walk in here, honey, it's fine. Like, what was their collusion between each other? And we'll never know, of course, because the mother's dead, and for obvious reasons, Gypsy's in, in prison and she'll be having her defense and in her defense, it's really, um, whether it's true or not, it's really about what a victim she was and how domineering the mother was, which I, I'm sure that's quite true. Mm. It definitely makes you think a lot more about sort of the, the dynamics between the two of them. Yeah, that was makes it, it's interesting to me. Yeah, so I want to switch gears. It's awards season. Mm. You, of course, won an Oscar uh, for your role in, in Pollock. What do you wish you had known um, before you got up on stage to, to accept the award? Well, that's a really great question. Um, I think that it's important for people to manage their expectations. I can guarantee you, I was sure that the next day I would wake up and throw back the curtains of my hotel room and the lawn would be made of emeralds. <laughs> Scorsese would be standing out there going, Marsha, I'm so glad you woke up. You want to be in my next movie? And maybe Spielberg would push him out of the way, you know, and be like, like, no, she's in my movie. Like, you're so sure that the world is in a different colored lens. And you wake up. Literally what I did is I woke up, and we were in a hotel room, and I woke up, and I was like, there was a photo shoot coming over to do the Oscar photo shoot, mm. and we couldn't find Oscar, and it's because my daughter, who was three at the time, had drug him into her little bed. It was like a little coffee table-sized bed. She had drug Oscar into bed with her, and she was like, Oscar's tired. He's not coming for that photo shoot. And we are like, give us the Oscar. I, mean, I was like already fighting for the Oscar. So it was just, you know, real life. Mm. Yeah. It happens the next day. You still wake up and you still need breakfast. You still need breakfast in the same kind of work you did right. with the same kind of people is probably the kind of work you'll still get to do, but your life is a little bit more glorified. You have that validation, that honor, and you'll always carry it with you. I mean, I actually... Can someone bring the Oscar? In? <laughs> it's in the dressing room here in BuzzFeed. I'm carrying it with me. <laughs> I wish that we all could hear and have a little pass around. Well, of course you have, you know, a very amazing filmography and we don't have time to list it all here, but I want to play a little game with you, a lightning round. Oh my God. Are I'm you ready? I'm so bad at this, yes. <laughs> you'll be good. You'll be good. This is all about you. You can't mess this up. I, I do, but go ahead. So for which role do people most recognize you for in the street? 
uh, Law and Order SVU. Oh, really? Yes, yes. Dana, the detective in Law and Order SVU, yeah. they're like, we love her, <laughs> get her out of jail, which I'm like, yes, let's get her out of jail. That could happen, eh? Um, who was the cheekiest person on the Fifty Shades sets? Oh, um, I would say a, a, a Dakota by far. Oh, yeah. why? Yeah. You know, just she's got such a little, a great sense of humor, and she was also really taking control of how she wanted her character to be presented and mm. what the sex scenes were and the romance, you know. So I, and, and oh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm sorry, Rita Ora. I'm sorry, Rita. Rita, Rita, Rita. Rita's a naughty girl. Naughty, naughty, naughty. She makes me laugh. <laughs> it just came in as a memory. Yeah, it did, it did. Okay, so you, on How to Go Away with Murder, you played Viola Davis's sister in law. Yes. Name three words to describe Viola Davis. Oh, Lord. Fierce, mm. stunning, advocate. Good words. Mm -hmm. Okay, would you rather play roller derby with Ellen Page, like Whip It, or be the first lady for a day, like in American Dreams? Oh, roller derby. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantasy land, so you don't have to worry about knees or anything like Wouldn't that. Wouldn't mind uh, speaking to the first lady today <laughs> and making sure that the job is getting done. So, if you had to be stuck on a desert island with one member of the First Wives Club, are you choosing Goldie, Bet, or Diane? I think it's going to be, that's so hard. That's <laughs> not fair. That is not fair. Because um, they're all amazing, for sure, each one of them. But it might have to be bad, because I just need to have her sing to me for a little bit. <laughs> that's fair. You get the yeah, humor yeah, of yeah. singing. That's yeah. good. Well, thank you so much for playing the game, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Today. It's lovely really to join you. really appreciate it. Um, of course, Love You to Death premieres tomorrow night at 8 p.m. on the Lifetime. Up next, Isaac and Saeed are going to read your tweets. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back. We asked you whose face you would get tattooed on your back if you had to. Grammaticus Finch had this to say, Chewbacca, uh, the hair between my shoulder blades would enhance the effect. You have thought this through. That is a thoughtful tattoo. Wow. Kirsten <laughs> Baptiste added, my future dog baby, true loyalty. Uh, you're, you want a tattoo of a dog you don't even? It's the future. It might be a very cute dog. Okay, Kirsten. I'm gonna I'm gonna I like you, Kirsten. <laughs> you and I, I'll come to Houston, we can get matching tattoos. Right. It'll be great. It's very bizarre. All right, well, thank you to all of our guests this morning. Chris Geidner, Emma Loop, Jackson McHenry, Sarah Riley, Stephanie McNeil, Natalie Walker, Amber Jamison, and of course Oscar winner Marsha Gay Harden. That was a great conversation. What a wonderful conversation. Listen, next week we have Nicole Scherzinger, Daniel Radcliffe, Roy Wood Jr., Jeremy O'Harris, and more. It's gonna be an action-packed week. You will not want to miss it. We will be back on Monday at 10 a.m. Have a great, great weekend.